Hello and welcome to Cancer Kicking Pow Wow. I'm your host, Dr. Christy Funk, board certified breast surgeon, women's health advocate, and best selling author. Cancer Kicking Pow Wow explores the thriver stories of women who have made significant dietary and lifestyle interventions after a breast cancer diagnosis such that they've emerged from their journey victorious and resilient and with more passion and purpose than they ever thought possible before being diagnosed. It also includes the healthcare movers and shakers who are in the trenches day after day trying to treat and cure cancer who also bring a message of hope and empowerment because you have much more control over this disease than you have probably ever been told or thought. You are in control of you. Today is a very special day indeed. It is October 1st, 2019, and it marks the inaugural episode of Cancer Kicking Pow Wow, which is available as a video blog on the incredible Pink Lotus Power Up website at pinklotus.com forward slash powwow. You can also subscribe to Cancer Kicking Pow Wow and listen to each episode as an audio-only podcast, either on our website or your smartphone or on podcast sites out there such as Apple or Google. So make sure you hit that subscribe button. Okay, I have two quick announcements to make and then we will get into our very first podcast. Announcement number one, Breast the Owner's Manual. It's out in paperback today, October 1st, and has a 50-page bonus chapter. So make sure you get it because it is a must read, or so I hear. My second announcement is very special. I have partnered with the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, PCRM, to launch today the Let's Beat Breast Cancer campaign. So this advocates for a four-pronged approach to dramatically reduce your risk of getting breast cancer or of having it recur. To take the pledge to actively pursue these four prongs, go to letsbeatbreastcancer.org and sign the pledge today. All right, so we have with us today as our first lady, <laughs> Jessie. Jessie is a 29-year-old airplane pilot. Yes, she flies through the air with the greatest of ease. And she is a thriver. She was diagnosed at the tender age of 28 with an estrogen-driven breast cancer. And from that little intro, we will launch into, hello, Jesse. Hello. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me here. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you for coming. And she drove all the way from Santa Barbara. So, okay. I would like for you to help us journey way back to your childhood. And I'd love to know a little bit about what that was like for you in terms of the social support around you, the family structure, your activity level, and in particular, what kinds of foods you ate. Absolutely. So I grew up in really an ideal neighborhood with an ideal family, two stable parents, a brother, dog, the whole white picket, the whole thing, <laughs> right. the whole thing. Uh, I grew up playing sports 
forever. Both of my parents were runners and they instilled that in me very early on. Did you run track in high school and stuff? I, I did cross country. Okay. And I played soccer throughout. I played tennis. I was always a very active kid. So my neighborhood was amazing. There was always kids running around and it was a very active, social, loving place to grow up. My godparents even lived right next door. Oh, I love that. So very tight knit little community there that we had. So the one thing that that wasn't such a big uh, presence in my life was healthy foods. Mm. Uh, growing up, it was all about convenience. Both of my parents worked full time. My mom was a teacher. My dad was a firefighter and he had a side business as well. Mm -hmm. So dinners were all about convenience. Like right. I said, it was frozen it, food, TV mm -hmm. dinners, takeout. Exactly. It pizza was delivery. <laughs> a lot of pizza delivery, <laughs> a lot of microwave dinners. When we did sit down and have family dinners, which we did often, it was really meat centric. We would have ground beef tacos. We would have kielbasa sausage and potatoes, all that kind of stuff that of course it was delicious. It was hearty. We were all sitting as a family. Everything was wonderful. The priority definitely wasn't on vegetables. Right. You know, it's interesting that you say that. There's an excellent study called the Nurses Health 2 study, and they followed 39,000 premenopausal women for seven years and found a 34% increase in premenopausal estrogen-driven breast cancers for those who ate the most red meat during high school years. So it is pretty incredible to think that food can have that much of an impact. But then on the flip side, of course it would and could and should. So changing the choices can change health outcomes, which is empowering and awesome to know. But it's true. The meats, particularly the, the sausage, we know 100% are absolutely carcinogenic to humans men and women alike, and not just as it pertains to breast cancer. Right. The IARC, International Agency for Research on Cancer, um, is a group that's like not bought. They're not paid. But they don't get any big checks to say what Big Beef mm. or whatever wants them to say. So they met in July 2015 in France. 22 scientists from 10 different countries reviewed 800 epidemiologic studies to simply answer two questions. Does red meat cause cancer? Does processed meat cause cancer? And they came out definitively saying that all processed meat is absolutely carcinogenic to humans on the same scale as tobacco, plutonium, and asbestos. So literally the sausages, hot dogs, and um, kielbasa are carcinogenic, but so, so is deli meat. So even an organic chicken breast or turkey slices, absolutely carcinogenic. So it's interesting that the data is so strong and yet so people so few people know about it. Absolutely. All right, so let's carry on. Let's move into what was college like for you, cafeteria food or how, what, what happened there? College was, was definitely a lot of, once again, convenience. It was whatever's going to be served there in the dining hall. And I, I went to a very small college, only 1,600 students, lived on campus all four years. And so I, I was definitely dorm food. And were you still active? Did you do sports? 
Sports definitely took a downturn in college. Mm -hmm. I was still active, but just on my own, I would go for runs, uh, but I wasn't actually on a team or had a consistent workout throughout college. The one thing that I did pick up in college though was my monthly breast exams. Really? Yes. Oh, interesting. Okay, I knew that you had felt your own cancer. Obviously at 28, you weren't getting mammograms. Well, I say obviously, because we don't start them even in very high risk people until age 30. Okay, so you were doing, I love hearing this. I'm su such a strong advocate for people doing self-breast exams, even though the main cancer societies in America have recently said, yeah, they don't help, just forget about it. It stresses people out, causes too many false alarms and biopsies, et cetera. But my main point and your living proof is that if you start at a young age, particularly even at 13, like when you start menstruating, I want you to start doing exams, not because you're going to find a breast cancer at 14 years old, but because you need to get familiar with the lay of the land and not feel like, oh, it wigs me out. Like most people who start at age 35, they're like, it's lumpy and bumpy and it freaks me out. Mm -hmm. But if they've just been doing it forever, when, heaven forbid, but when they come across a new lump, they're like, mm, that was not there before. Is that what happened? It's exactly what happened to me. So I was in the habit starting at age 18 to do these monthly exams. And so I always knew what felt normal everywhere. And of course, even then there were lumps and bumps and, and things are just, you know, you feel everything. And it's kind of <laughs> like, well, is that really what's going on? Because it doesn't feel the same as they are. <laughs> right. <laughs> So I was in the habit early on and it was in May, 2018 that I first felt a lump and it felt like just a, a marble mm -hmm. in my breast right here. I can, I'm touching cause it's like, it's right there. I can still sense it right. even though it's not. Um, so I, I knew right away, May, 2018, I thought that wasn't there before that is new. That has grown since since I last checked right and I can now feel it so I had the the amazing coincidence of actually being under the care of a doctor who had had breast cancer herself so when I went in I went in a month later because of course I went to Dr. Google as you're not supposed to do <laughs> and I saw that most lumps in women my age are probably just benign fibroadenoma, a cyst that's going to come and go exactly. with, with, uh, with the month. And so well, to your point, one out of every 1,587 20 somethings gets breast cancer. Yes. So I was definitely, <laughs> <laughs> your odds was were rare. good, but as it turns out, yeah. okay. Yeah. So I, I, like I said, I, I went to my doctor about a month later because it hadn't gone away at that point. And she didn't even bat an eye. You know, it wasn't, oh, you're too young for this. I didn't hear that once from my doctor. Yeah, it she was, deserves kudos for that because many doctors would just dismiss a 28-year-old. I've even heard of, of stories of women that their doctor feels it and says, oh, it can't be cancer. You, you can't know that just from feeling. So I was sent right down the path of mammogram and ultrasound and biopsy. And it was August 3rd that I got the news from my surgeon, unfortunately through an email. That was quite a shock. And so mm. I was in your office a week later and got the full scoop from you. Right. 
And I remember you came in with Shaw, your adorable husband. Tell me a little bit, when did you guys get married? So we were married just shy of a year earlier. So we were very, very new newlyweds and taking that in sickness and in health vow to <laughs> to the test. I oh, yeah. See. Yes. <laughs> so when we met, I do remember distinctly that we, as I always do, walk through what breast cancer is, honed in on your specific subtype, all the different options to treat and cure it. And by the time you left my office, the game plan had been you gave me some spit that we sent off for genetic testing. And your thinking in that moment was, mm, I really want children. I really want to breastfeed eventually, not tomorrow, knowing that we'd have to do some stuff before you could get pregnant safely. Um, but if there's no gene mutation, we're going to keep the breast. Mm -hmm. And that decision came from your understanding correctly of this fact. You have exactly the same survival and the same recurrence rate by keeping your breast doing just a lumpectomy followed by radiation as you do removing the entire breast. It doesn't feel like intuitively that would be true, but there were six massive studies in the 80s that randomized women into these different groups and we've now got the benefit of 40 years later and it's absolutely true across the board in all six international studies that these rates are identical, which is a relief for women who want to keep their breasts, but they don't want to die because they did. Um, and so that's where we left it. However, with my phone call to tell you that you thankfully did not have a gene mutation, came the news that to me that you wanted a bilateral mastectomy. <laughs> so what happened? <laughs> Yeah, you know, it is, it's really important to make sure that everybody knows that your, your odds of recurrence are the same mm -hmm. with everything. And knowing that made my decision more difficult mm -hmm. and also easier because I could make a decision based on other things right. outside of recurrence. So for me, it really came down to a decision of, of what's best for me right now. And knowing that, you know, I, I was so active. The, the month that I found my lump, actually, I had just completed a triathlon. I was in the best shape of my life. And this cancer interruption, I, I didn't want it to, to prolong too, you know, I didn't want it to last too long. I really wanted to be able to feel like, okay, I'm doing this surgery and I can get used to my new body and feel really comfortable and con confident as I always have. So you didn't want it to last too long, like go through the whole six and a half weeks of radiation. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Radiation and. Or the surveillance, the lifelong surveillance of I now I have breasts. Now I need mammograms, ultrasounds, MRIs, biopsies, whenever there's a blip on the radar, that, that. I wanted to avoid as much of that as possible. Mm -hmm. So that was, that was a big consideration for me all of those checks. And then also it, the confidence thing, being able to do a double mastectomy, have symmetry, mm -hmm. be able to feel confident in everything that I wore. If I had had, you know, a single mastectomy, things would look different on right. either side. So for me, it was, you know, it, it was a little bit of a vain decision in some ways when I came down to it, just because I, I wanted to look the same mm -hmm. or as close to it as possible. So knowing once again, that recurrence was going to be the same, no matter what path I chose, it really came down to kind of a lifestyle decision. 
Mm-hmm. I and still want to wear, wear my sexy V-necks. You know, <laughs> I do. <laughs> and you're rocking them. You're looking great. So your decision to pursue bilateral mastectomy is actually the most common reason for which I end up operating with mastectomies. And that is patient preference. It's not because the tumor is super large and removing it would create definite deformity or a personal desire to avoid radiation just based on toxicities or side effects or a gene mutation. Now, you did have a variant. We call them VUSs, variants of uncertain significance, which basically are like freckles on skin. They're not mutations. We don't know what they mean, but the vast, vast majority of them will be downgraded to meaningless. So like a freckle is not melanoma. It's just something we take note of and don't take action about. So you had a variant, but no mutation. Mutations are a reason often that people do mastectomy. But the majority, as I mentioned, are what you just said. Look, these breasts tried to kill me. I don't want them. And I want mastectomies. I must say, so you you did a triathlon right before your diagnosis, and we're going to get into post. But that is why we chose here at my house to have our discussion in front of a treadmill and the cycling bike and the, the Zwift screen that can go on the iPad. Um, because athletics has always been near and dear to your heart. And we're going to talk about how that played into your recovery and healing, both mm-hmm. physically and actually emotionally. So hence the setting. Um, let's move forward to surgery day. And recovery. Tell me how the healing and recovery in reality compared to your anticipation of it. Definitely more difficult than I anticipated. Hmm. It, it really was. Leading up to surgery, I followed your, your supplement guide mm-hmm. beforehand. So I felt like I was already in this regimen and getting my body prepped and ready. And I was exercising up until the day before surgery, just so that I was strong, mm-hmm. that my body was was tough. And I, I felt like that was really important to me leading up to it. And when surgery day came, you know, this was my very first surgery ever. Oh, I didn't realize it. Not first even... time being under, all oh, of it. Dear. So I really didn't know what to expect. And of course, this is a, a very invasive, intense surgery. Yeah, girl, just go big or go home <laughs> for surgery. <laughs> So I remember coming out of, of my, you know, stupor of anesthesia and being wheeled into my room and my parents and my husband were waiting for me. And I called out the new and improved Jesse. Are you serious? <laughs> I did. Do they have that on video? They don't, but they talk about it all the time. They love that story. So immediately I just felt like, okay, we're, we're doing this. But, but I love that that was your immediate attitude, all kind of in a, um, like, you know, five glasses of wine straight to the <laughs> totally. head moment and coming out of anesthesia. But because th- that just shows your inner spirit and attitude because you had no filter, mm-hmm. but you're just like, this is better. I'm, I came oh, yeah. out of this already better than when I went in. Definitely. Well, Definitely. it certainly came out cancer-free. Cancer-free. So recovery lasted a couple of days in the hospital and that was, that was tough. That mm. was a tough time. Pain-wise, mobility-wise. Pain definitely. If I didn't have my pain meds, even <laughs> if it, even if I was thirty minutes an hour late, it was it was pretty hmm. terrible. I had you know the shakes and the and the shivers and all that kind of stuff. It was 
not fun. Um, the drains really surprised me as well. Mm-hmm. That was something that, that Shaw had to help me with uh, for the week after surgery as I, ha- I had two drains from one each from side. each side mm-hmm. and I get a little squeamish. So he had to help me with that. But just, just having these things there, it, it was just kind of a constant reminder. Sitting up was very difficult as well. Mm-hmm. So we actually rented an automatic lift oh, chair that, that kind of catapults you out. Exactly. Out. That yeah. helped me out of bed and, and just my husband was such an amazing help for me during those first few days when I was so reliant on mm. somebody else for the first time in my life, really, that I felt I couldn't even, I couldn't even get out of bed without help, right. which was very difficult. Um, very difficult. And humbling. Humbling. Absolutely. And not to put ideas in your head, but I've heard that a lot of people, they get stuck in this mode feeling like, of course they're going to recover and they're like smarter self knows that it's not going to be like this forever. But in that moment, you feel like there could never be an end to this possibly. And that you would be in need and dependent on others forever. Even though you know, that's not true. It, it, a lot of people come out of surgery and I warn them that they're elated. Look, they didn't die. They don't look completely deformed and like some crazy monster. So their fears are gone. Mm -hmm. Things that, and they're so elated. And then they're like, Oh, but I have to recover and it hurts. And mm-hmm. some people have like chemo next and radiation mm-hmm. next. And it's like, this is difficult and mm-hmm. unfun. Okay. I have a question that I think will be super helpful for our viewers. And that is walk me through the recovery process in terms of milestones. Like when did your dreams come out? When could you drive? When could you shower? When could you go underwater, bathtub, jacuzzi, swimming pool? My personal favorite with you is basically all patients eventually ask me, when can I fly in a plane? Yeah, you were the only patient who has ever asked me, when can I fly a plane? <laughs> so yeah, give us a sense of timeline for recovery. Yeah, sure. So the first week was definitely, I was super reliant on everybody else to help me get things from higher shelves. You know, I was just like this, like robot arms. I right. couldn't move them at all. So the big milestones for me were the drains coming out about a week after surgery. Mm-hmm. Which is fast for most people. Maybe up to 7 to 14 days is more normal, but you weren't as juicy as some people can be. <laughs> yeah, I definitely think that the supplements, flushing everything out, really helped. As well as going to the hyperbaric chamber. I did about five sessions in, mm-hmm. in the chamber. So that was... I have to think that that had some kind of impact on it would that time. Yeah. I forgot you did the hyperbarics because you didn't quote unquote need it. So I kind of keep that reserved for sure. When there's like complicated recoveries, either because people are smokers or diabetics, or they've had multiple operations or radiation prior to their chest so that the skin blood flow isn't as robust as it could be. You thankfully didn't have any blood flow issues whatsoever. Um, and healed picture perfect. But doing hyperbarics in your situation will expedite healing and drains will come out sooner and it will decrease infection risk. So sometimes, often insurance covers it as part of the wound healing, um, but I'm glad you did it and that probably did help. The supplement regimen is great and I detail it out in my book um, because 
it works. It helps with healing and recovery. It rids body, the body of anesthesia and some of the other drugs like Percocet a little faster. But what I also love about it is people want to participate actively in their recovery and you can't like make yourself heal faster and you can't work out to do like, there's very little you can actually actively do, but following this regimen gives people a sense of control in an otherwise fairly out of control few weeks. Um, so yeah, I'm glad that you followed it and it worked well for you. It did. It really did. I loved making my smoothies every morning, um, with all of my supplements added in. Mm -hmm. It was definitely a structure for me during mm -hmm. that time. So the next big milestone was two weeks after surgery, I drove for the first time mm -hmm. and I was so nervous about raising my arms that I remember holding the steering wheel down like this and I didn't want to make any turns or any sudden movements. So I just drove straight down the hill to really down one single road to the beach. I parked and got out and took a little walk and got back to my car. And I felt so accomplished that I had done that. Right. And then just drove in my straight line back home. <laughs> in reverse. Yes. <laughs> That's funny. So we operated um, September? September. Okay. And September 12th. So after the recovery, thankfully, your tumor was small and it wasn't in three or more positive nodes or at margins. These are the reasons why we still radiate even when you choose mastectomy. So no radiation. We knew that fairly fast after PATH came back. Then there was a two-week waiting game while your oncotype was brewing. So that is an analysis of the cancer cells that tells us the percent chance that this particular cancer with your genetic makeup of the tumor will want to come back in a life-threatening place within the next 10 years, like lung, liver, brain, or bone. So you met with a couple different oncologists. Why don't you walk us through the chemo yes or no decision? So one of the oncologists thought before getting the oncotype back, just because of your age, oh, it's got to be chemo. Mm -hmm. And Oh, and the node. And the node. Mm -hmm. I did have one positive node that didn't see on any imaging. It just, you know... <laughs> It showed itself when, when you pulled it out. Yeah, when we did the sentinel node biopsy. So that node um, was a micromet, thankfully, and it was inside. It didn't change the look of the node, so ultrasound or MRI wouldn't have seen it as looking weird, but yet it was there. So that would push many a doctor to push you toward chemo. So when we got the oncotype back, though, it was very low. I had an oncotype score of 11. Which is awesome. Nice and low. Yes. Yes. So chemo, by definition, can't make a low number lower. And so you're kind of off the hook with needing to do it. But that number only applies while you're taking tamoxifen, meaning it assumes tamoxifen. Otherwise, the numbers double. So how's that going for you? <laughs> <laughs> I've only forgotten a couple nights, which is great. I take them at night. Okay. Uh, it's definitely taken taken me a while to get on the habit of remembering, you know, oh, I, I'm on medication for several years. This is the first time that I've actually taken medication for any prolonged period of time. And I was really nervous at first about having side effects because they're mm -hmm. so common. Mm -hmm. uh, thankfully, I, I haven't seen much of anything That's great. in the year or so that I've been on it. I have found that my younger patients under 40 usually are pretty good on tamoxifen. They're like, yeah, I had some night, 
nice way the hot flashes in the beginning and now it's okay. <laughs> so I'm glad that you're not troubled by that daily medication. Yes. Okay, so let's get into the good stuff, which is what is different about your life? A lot of women have this pivotal change happen because they inherently feel, look, everything I was doing, thinking, feeling, living before led me here, which was cancer. Thankfully, an early stage one little old lady, lazy cancer that didn't even need <laughs> chemo. However, it was cancer nonetheless. And at 28, I mean, I mean, how badly have you really lived for the cells to create that kind of change? And yet there it was and no gene mutation to blame. So you can't emerge from this doing everything exactly the same, thinking you're going to be a-okay when it led to cancer before. So why wouldn't it just manifest in another illness? Tell me, that's, tell me about your process. I remember it was in our first consultation and Shah, my husband, was there with me and he's the one that brought up diet and nutrition. And you had your book published at that point and I remember you went right to the chapter and you were telling us all kinds of things about, about a plant-based diet. And Shah had been vegetarian for several years before meeting me and then I was doing a lot of the cooking and so he wasn't. And that was always something that was very important to him. And he knew, hey, this is what we're eating. It's got to make an impact on our body. So I remember in our first consultation that you you told us about researching that section of your book. And mm -hmm. you probably want to share the story of coming down the stairs and throwing out all the cheese. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my therapy drawer, my five-year-age Gouda, my Manchego. It's true. It was a split second, like just boom, we're vegan from that moment on. Um, and so are you fully plant-based? I like to call myself a 99% vegan because there are certain things that I will make a special exception for. I'm not depriving myself of the things that I really love. Like uh, we just celebrated our two-year anniversary, and so we celebrated with, with coconut cake, and that's what we had at our wedding. Oh, right. So that's not vegan, but it's one of those special things that I'll make an exception for. Every other meal, though, that we have, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, is plant-based. Amazing. And how do you feel? What have you noticed is different? I feel incredible. I really do. I, I feel like I have more energy. I feel like my skin is clearer than it has been. Mm -hmm. And the most important thing for me is that Every single day, I am actively doing something for my health. Mm -hmm. I'm not just relying on that tamoxifen pill mm -hmm. once a day to do all of the work. I'm actively contributing to, to my health. And that just feels so empowering for me to, to make those decisions, to know that every single fork is doing something good for my body, not something bad. Exactly. And you have that choice because what's on the end of the fork can create estrogen levels and growth hormones, inflammation, free radicals, angiogenesis, the, incre the creation of new blood vessels to a tumor cell, which is required for that cell to proliferate for one to become two to four to eight and so on until Finally, it's an actual wad that has its exit strategy built in right there through the blood and straight to the liver. And 
animal protein and animal fats promote all of that, what we term oxidative stress that leads to DNA damage and these cells, little micro environment, the fluids and cells that bathe a cancer cell are either feeding and fueling it or seeking and destroying it. And when that forkful is a bunch of leafy greens and broccoli or lentils and beans and peas and nuts and 100% whole grains, seek and destroy, baby. It's really <laughs> exciting. It's exciting to know that food can be this weapon. Yeah, it is. Tell me about exercise. Has that changed? It sounds like you were kind of active since birth. Yes. Um, I was so excited to get back to the gym to, to start working out again. And it was, it was slow going and I've made a lot of modifications, but I'm, I'm back. I did a triathlon last month actually. (laughs) So definitely feel like physically I'm back. Uh, I have full range of motion. Everything is, everything is physically back on track. Amazing. Terrific. And then the future. What do you think about when you think of next year, five years, 10 years from now, are hopes and dreams any different than they were before cancer or just a different attitude towards the same dreams? I think it's a, it's a bit of both. I feel like one of the things that cancer gave me is a stronger alignment that I in all of my actions, all of my behaviors, everything, I'm in stronger alignment with what really matters to me. Mm. I'm more aligned with my values. Because there was a moment when you thought, I could die. Yeah. When everything's oh, yeah. unknown and the truth of this cancer in the story is unwritten. Totally. You have to face your own mortality at 28 years old. Totally. And you're just reliant on the on the next test to come in to tell you this path or this path and and how likely you are to recur- to have a recurrence. I mean, mm-hmm. all of these things that, yeah, never expected to think about at 28. So really that, that alignment has been incredible for me. And I feel like all of my dreams and hopes for, you know, a family and a home and, and, and all of these other things career wise, I, I just feel like I'm so much more aligned with that mm-hmm. and not, not spending so much energy on distractions. So I've always actually had this, this thought in my head that I want to be the grandma that the grandchildren look at and they're like, no way did you do all of that grandma? You know, I want to have all of those stories and just a full rich life. And cancer is definitely not slowing that down. I love that. Thank you so much for being my very first powwow here on Cancer Kicking. Um, And if you have not yet done so, don't forget to subscribe to Cancer Kicking Powwow. Tell all your friends about this podcast, please, because I don't want anybody to miss out on the empowering stories of thrivers and healthcare warriors over the next, I don't know, maybe I'll just keep this up forever because I know how important it is to have a sense of community. You are not alone in this world. So join us at Pink Lotus Power Up. Join us here on all of the upcoming podcasts. So until we meet again, remember to eat those plants, exercise often, limit alcohol, and get to your ideal body weight so that you can say with confidence, take that cancer!